Father in heaven, thank you so much for this great book. Thank you, Lord, that you consider us worthy. And even saying this, Father, blows my mind. That you consider us worthy to reveal these things to us. And to unlock the mysteries. And to explain everything that you want us to know. We thank you, Lord. (laughs) Thank you for Annie. Pray that she'll get over her barking thing. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come into this place. And that you would teach us. And that you guide us through your words and help us to see clearly. Father, I don't want to add anything that shouldn't be added or take anything away from the words in this book. And so we just pray that you would lead us through this. And we thank you for your love and your direction in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Verse 1, which we looked at last week. Then there was given me... A measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Last week we talked about the temple. The temple, both in history and in prophecy, to understand it. In fact, we talked about at the time of the tribulation, as this verse indicates, there will be a Jewish temple standing in Jerusalem. Its presence is assumed in verse 1, as John is told to go and measure the temple. It's there, it's present. We talked about the fact that when John wrote these words, the temple was not there. It had been destroyed some 25 years prior to John writing the book of Revelation. So we know there will be a temple in Jerusalem at the time of the tribulation, as John indicates to us. There are others in the Bible who concur, who validate this idea of a temple standing in Jerusalem. Daniel is one of these. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. I'll just read this to you says, forces from him, and Daniel at this point is talking about Antichrist, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. The regular sacrifice happens in, or happened in the temple. You have to have a temple to have the sacrifice. Oh, yes. You're welcome. Verses, verses, verses. You have to have a temple... Okay, great. To have a sacrifice. And we talked about last week that throughout history, for the last 2,000 years, the Jewish people have had a major problem in their faith. For their religion to be valid, there needs to be a temple. Because without the temple, you can't sacrifice. And without the sacrifice, gang, there is no forgiveness of sin. From the Jewish mindset, Leviticus 17 talks about the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so there's a catch-22 in Judaism. Jews who believe in God, who trust God, who who believe in Jehovah God, God of the Old Testament, and yet because they don't believe in the sacrifice brought by Jesus, the blood shed by Jesus, they're caught in a place where they're believing in God, but they cannot be forgiven of sin because there's no temple. There's no place of sacrifice. But we're told in the tribulation period there will be a temple. Jews in Jerusalem right now long for it. Ultra-Orthodox Jews are planning for it. There are those on, on who would be called a radical fringe who want to go up and destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Mosque just to make room for it. It's a hotbed of activity. We've talked about that. But it says in Daniel 11.31 that this temple that will be standing during the tribulation will be wiped out. And this phrase is used. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. You've probably heard that phrase. The abomination of desolation. 
Daniel goes on and says, Then the king, speaking again of Antichrist, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until, until the indignation is finished. Now just a little historical background here. Daniel, as he prophesied in Daniel chapter 11, in the verses I just read to you, Daniel talked about something that happened some 500, 600 years after Daniel prophesied this would happen, in 186 BC, a man rose up, a ruler, a leader, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and Antiochus Epiphanes came in and sacked Jerusalem, went into the temple, and the first thing he did was he defiled it, he desecrated it. He took basically pig parts and had them strewn all over in the holy place of the temple. Thus defiling it for the Jews, thus making it uh, unacceptable for sacrifice. Then he set up an idol. Some believe it was the idol to the god Jupiter. Others believe it was an actual idol for Antiochus Epiphanes himself. But he set up this idol in there and it was called by Daniel the abomination of desolation. But here's the thing. Jesus reveals something to us and you need to pay attention to this because you're going to hear it two or three times tonight in our study of chapter 11. Some prophecies are twofold in fulfillment. Some prophecies are given and are fulfilled in the short term, but then are completely fulfilled or refulfilled in the long term. You see an immediate fulfillment. Antiochus Epiphanes does bring about this abomination of desolation. It did happen in 186 BC. But Jesus takes hold of this and tells us even more. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Keep your finger in Revelation 11. We'll get back there. This is all background to where we're going tonight. Matthew 24, verse 15. Matthew 24:15. Jesus is speaking. He's talking about perilous times to come. And he says the following. He says, therefore, when you see, when you see, not when you saw, not in the past, Jesus speaking is speaking somewhere around A.D. 30, 31, 32, somewhere in that ballpark. Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple 186 B.C., so over 200 years earlier. And now Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then in parentheses, Matthew writes, let the reader understand. What's he saying, let the reader understand? Understand this. The abomination of desolation happened and will happen. Twice the prophecy will be fulfilled. And Jesus says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. We'll see that happen in Revelation chapter 12. Possibly next week, maybe the week after. Who is on, whoever's on the housetop, Jesus said, must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant... And those who are nursing babies in those days, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then, Jesus says, there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Jesus explains to us the abomination of desolation, which is this idea of setting up an idol in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, something to try and replace God. He says this is something that is yet to come. And yet we know historically it also happened before Jesus spoke these words. It is a dual-edged prophecy. 
But this desecration of the standing temple will also happen in the time of the tribulation. Now flip quickly back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2. Verse 2, John is told, he's told in verse 1, measure the temple, check it out, get, get the measurements there. And he's told also in verse 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. It's been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now that being said, understand, this, this time of the city being tread underfoot for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years, precisely. Three and a half years. That's a, a, a span of time to keep in mind as we study. But things, things continue to hurtle toward that day when Jerusalem will be tread underfoot for 42 months as instability right now. And I don't know if you're watching. In fact, I would encourage you as we study these things to keep your eye on the world stage. Watch the news, especially anytime you hear the word Jerusalem or Israel crop up. Watch what's happening over there. Things continue to progress toward a time when Israel itself will be completely indefensible. As the Bible indicates, they will be. That time will come. If you haven't been watching the news, let me read to you quickly an article. This is from Jerusalem Newswire about Hamas and their allies and their preparation for victory over Israel. Listen to this. Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert's intention to surrender most of Judea and Samaria, by the way, including East Jerusalem. This will be the first time Jerusalem as a city is divided, which the Bible warns seriously against. Most of Judea and Samaria and East Jerusalem allowing the de facto establishment of a sovereign Hamas state. This is the inclination of Israel's current Prime Minister. The one who followed Ariel Sharon, the old warrior. And now Ehud Omer wants to allow this setting up of a sovereign Hamas state. And it says it will lead to a confrontation that the terror group and its allies throughout the Middle East will easily win, declared the head of Iran's powerful revolutionary guards Wednesday. So Iran's watching very closely. They're seeing what's going on, and they're believing, and, they, and they're, they would be right from a strategic perspective. All they need is for Hamas to be given complete control of the Palestinian areas, and guess what? We have everything we need. The, the Arabs can flow in, the Muslim armies can flow into the Palestinian areas, and wipe Jerusalem off the map, and wipe the Jews, drive the Jews into the sea. That's the plan. It's always been the plan. It's never been, let's exist side by side with Israel. We're reading on, it says, speaking on state television in Tehran, General Yahya, Yahya Rahim Safavi commented on Omer's election victory and the inauguration of the Palestinian Authority's Hamas-led government, both of which happened Tuesday. Here's what he said. If they confront one another with the Muslim support for the revolutionary Palestinians, great victories will definitely be for the Palestinians. He hasn't read the Bible. Today, he said, the Iranians are hand in hand with the Lebanese, the Syrians, the Iraqis, and the Palestinians initiating a new trend that will free Palestine, will see the defeat of the Zionists, and the U.S.'s greater Middle East plan. It says, despite clear warnings, Ehud Omert reacted to the news of his victory by stating his determination to follow through with his convergence plan which will see Israel vacate some 90% of Judea and Samaria and hide behind its security barrier. Why would Israel do that? We've talked about it in here because of their incredible desire just to have peace. They just want peace. 
but it's peace at any cost. It tells us that his specious approach is attracting increased criticism even from some of the Land for Peace camp's most devoted followers. A prominent Haaretz journalist, Ari Shabbat, in a conversation with Kadima's Haim Ramon, remember all these words, or these names, <laughs> prior to the election, said the following, I want a division of the land, but I hold that Ehud Omer's unilateral division plan is dangerous. It will lead to the establishment of an armed and hostile Hamas state that will undercut the stability of Israel, Jordan, and the Middle East. It will inevitably lead to war. Which is exactly what Ezekiel tells us will happen. Ezekiel 38-39 talks specifically about this massive onslaught against Israel that has never yet happened, but will happen. Why do I read all this? Zechariah chapter 12. I'll read this to you quickly. Zechariah chapter 12 says the following. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Back to Revelation 11. And so we see, gang, the relevance not only of Israel, but the relevance of Jerusalem, and ultimately the fight for sovereignty over the Temple Mount must not be downplayed for the Christian. That's why last week we spent so much time talking about the Temple. Why we had to go back and look at the first Temple that was built by who? Solomon. Solomon built the first temple. Who built the second temple? Do we remember? The exiles. Excellent. Zerubbabel and, and Joshua. Just remember the exiles. The second temple was built by the exiles. By the way, going back to the first temple built by Solomon, who destroyed the first temple? Do you remember that? It was before the people were taken into exile in Babylon. There's a hint. Big long name, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies before he led the people into captivity in exile in Babylon and destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple. The exiles come back and the second temple, Zerubbabel, Joshua, these are the guys who are part of that, building Ezra, building that second temple. And you may recall in the book of Ezra it says when the second temple was built, the people gathered around and the young people who had never seen a temple, who had been raised, born and raised in Babylon, they were thrilled. We've got a temple. The old people who had seen the original temple wept openly because it was so pathetic in comparison to what they remembered. And yet it was built until the second temple was refurbished, renovated, upgraded. Who did that? Herod did. Excellent. So Herod comes along. And close to the time of Jesus, he begins this renovation process that lasted over 70 years. By the time Jesus came along, it had been underway for 46 years, and it was grand and glorious. Was the Spirit of God in the second temple? No. The Bible tells us only in Solomon's temple, we never see the Spirit of God actually entering and residing in the second temple. Although, the second temple was effective for the Jewish people. There could still be sacrifices. And so there was still forgiveness of sin connected to that second temple. The second temple then renovated by Herod was then destroyed. Who knows the date of the destruction of the second temple? 
70 AD. 70 AD. That's right. When Jerusalem was completely sacked and overrun, the temple was 100% destroyed. Jesus said, not one stone will be left standing on another one. You remember that? And that's exactly what happened. The temple was completely thrown off of the temple mount and wiped out. That's the second temple, 2.5, or temple 2.5, that Herod renovated. Then there's going to be a third temple, and that temple is going to happen when? In the tribulation. That temple will last for a short time. It, too, will be destroyed, and a fourth temple will be built. Who knows who the fourth temple will be built by? Jesus, absolutely, Messiah. And the Jews are waiting for that. They're looking for that. That fourth master builder will be Messiah. Which is why Antichrist will be able to so easily deceive. Because he's going to come up with, I believe, a plan. And I think the scriptures indicate this pretty clearly. He's going to come up with a plan for building a temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And the Jews will be so taken by it, they'll be taken in by him. Antichrist is not going to show up with a t-shirt that says, Hello, I'm Antichrist. Or one of those little stick-on you know, things that we don't have at this church, we'll never have at this church. Hello, I'm, I'm in a blank spot. You know. Antichrist isn't going to have that. They're not going to know. He is going to deceive the many through his craftiness and through his works. And he's going to build a temple. But it will be destroyed. Jesus then will build the millennial temple. And ultimately, there is a final temple. Do you remember, do you recall from last week, what the final temple is made up of? Exactly. The Lamb. The Lamb. The Father and the Lamb are the temple of New Jerusalem. They will be the temple. Which is absolutely stunning and amazing. And we'll get there later in our study. Now something else happens. Revelation chapter 11. Something amazing happens in this chapter. Right at the same time as John is told to measure the temple. Something else comes into play. Let me ask this question. How does a being who is extraterrestrial in every sense of the word. Extraterrestrial being, not bound by time, not bound by space or even dimension. How does a being of this type communicate his desires to people who are earthly in terms of time, space, and dimension? We are bound by those things. How does someone outside of that communicate to someone inside of that in a way that we can understand? God is that being. Do you know God is an extraterrestrial? Now we think about ET. You know, we immediately go to the movie and you know, phone home and the little finger and, and you know, the little heart and all that stuff. Pretty pathetic. You actually do. Do you cry when you watch ET? You, you do. Okay, good. Space has got a heart. When ET dies, all of a sudden his heart starts to beat again. And little Elliot's, ah, you know, I cry every time. What's the matter with you people? But that's not what we're talking about. Extraterrestrial, God is extra-earthly. He is not of the substance we are of. He is not bound in the way that we're bound. And you wonder, well, how, how does he go about then getting his word to us, communicating to us in a way not only that we can understand, but that we know is from God? That's the question everybody asks. How do you know Christianity is legitimate? How do you know your God is God? What if it's not Allah? Maybe Allah is God. How do you know? They've got their scriptures, you've got yours. Maybe it's Baha'u'llah. Maybe it's one of these many different guys we've talked about. How do you know your God is God, and how does he communicate that to us? That would be the challenge, I would think, for God. Well, are you going to just jump ahead the whole night, Spencer? He said the Holy Spirit, which is a brilliant answer. But listen for a second. Isaiah chapter 15, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15 says the following. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, 
This is God speaking. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. That is amazing. I dwell in a high and lofty place, a holy place. I'm beyond anything you can imagine. But I also dwell with those who are lowly and contrite in spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. This eternal, unbound God chooses to dwell in the lowly heart of earthbound man. Why? To lead us out of our earthboundness and into eternity. This is God's plan. But before he enters the heart of a person, before faith occurs, how does he communicate to us? Get our attention so that his Holy Spirit, as Spencer said, can come into us. How do we get to that place? How does he communicate? God says, give me a witness. Give me a witness. I can use a witness. A witness to his existence. A witness so that we know God is God. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. Love this verse. Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. You know, he, it's kind of like when you're at a church meeting and, and you raise your hand and, and you're really asking where the restroom is and the next thing you know you're in charge of the youth group. You know? <laughs> I'll go. <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> and this is Isaiah with the Lord. But I love the question. It's so amazing. God says, Whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? Who will be my witness? It's always been, interestingly, the modus operandi of God. It's the way He functions. He calls on witnesses to convey His message to mankind. He utilizes witnesses. Let me give you a few real quickly. Number one, He gives the witness of the prophets. The witness of the prophets. Enoch, by the way, was the first prophet. Did you know that? The first prophet to walk on the face of the earth, at least according to the biblical record, was Enoch. We know this because Jude tells us in the second to last book of the Bible, verse 14, it says that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, and you want to hear something amazing? The first prophet prophesied the first thing, and that first thing that was prophesied ever was the second coming of Christ. Listen to what Enoch says. He prophesied in the seventh generation from Adam, June 14, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. The first recorded prophecy we have from the first prophet in the seventh generation of Adam, Enoch was his name, and he prophesied the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we have the witness of the prophets, and there are many more, and you know this throughout Scripture, as we talked about this morning. The Bible is the only holy book that both gives prophecies and fulfills prophecies that we can see historically to measure the accuracy of this writing. Peter says in 2 Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure. We have the prophetic word more sure. That's how the word is more sure, because it's the prophetic word. And he says... To which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Remember this morning we talked about the lampstand and it's a picture not only of the Holy Spirit but of the Word. The Word of God like a lamp standing in a dark place until Peter says the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So we have the witness of the prophets. We have the witness of the written Word. The written Word. The Bible itself is a witness, is a testimony Again, of something that couldn't possibly just be written and bound by our time. The fact that any one prophecy is given and then fulfilled is absolutely amazing. And because we have these things in this book, we have a surety of the witness that God was involved with this. 
We talked about that also this morning, that the word is like Aaron's rod that budded in in Numbers chapter 17. It causes things to bud and to bloom and to blossom and to bear fruit. And Jeremiah 1.11 says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? He said, I see a rod of an almond tree. And then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And anyone who is willing to take a look at the Bible and to question it and to hold it up against history will be amazed at the intricacy of prophecy and how it's fulfilled. So we have the witness of the prophets of the written word. We have the witness of the walking word that is Jesus Christ himself. Who John said in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. So we have the word alive, the word fleshed out, the word walking. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says God... After he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, Jesus The walking word, the testimony of God being who God always claimed to be. That Jesus comes along and John tells us in John 1.18, no one's seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. You know what God's like? You look at Jesus. What made God laugh? Look at Jesus. What made God sorrowful? Look at Jesus. What does God hope for? Look at Jesus. What does God long for? What's his desire? Look at Jesus and you have the answer. That's the witness of the walking word. Number four, we have the witness of the apostles. The apostles, those followers of Jesus, those those 12 guys, 11 for a short time there, 12 again pretty soon after, but those guys who, who gave up everything for a myth, for something false, there was no glory in it for them. Every one of the apostles, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. Everyone. And they even tried to kill John. And you may recall that story. They tried to kill him. By dipping him in hot oil to burn him alive, and it didn't work. Somehow he survived. So they exiled him on Patmos and said, that'll shut him up. Book of Revelation happened on Patmos. Whoops. (laughs) That was a misstep there. John most likely died a natural death, the only one of the apostles. Why would these guys do this? Choose to, to completely change everything, give up everything, lose everything. Paul, the apostle, was a great guy among the Jews. Man, he was high on the corporate Jewish ladder. He was way up there. He was well known. He was respected. People, he, he could have been in line for great things. And so he chose Jesus, and it completely trashed his life. Whipping, stonings, beatings, shipwrecks, traveling, kicked out of every decent city in the Middle East. Paul had a lousy last part of his life. But he couldn't help it. He had to follow Jesus. What would spin these guys around but the witness, the witness that they had seen Jesus. Peter says in Acts, excuse me, Acts chapter 10, verse 39, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, that they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. That God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. By the way, the Bible tells us 500 people at one time saw Jesus alive. You don't make a statement like that unless it's true. Paul, or Peter said that God raised him up 
And, and we, we saw him witnesses who were chosen beforehand. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We saw him. We saw him, Peter says. And you can crucify me upside down if you want to. And that's what tradition tells us happened to Peter. You can do that. I can't help but tell you what I saw. I am a witness. John says in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested. That means seen. And he said, And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Who's that? That's Jesus. We saw him, John says. And you can say anything you want about me. And you can trash me and you can beat me and you can try to kill me, but I can't speak other than what I have seen with my own eyes. I'm a witness. I'm a witness. Why is John chosen to write the book of Revelation? Because God knew John would write it. Because John saw. And when John saw, he shared. John was a witness. We have the witness of the apostles. And by the way, throughout even this post-rapture, tribulation world, God continues to utilize witnesses to bring the message of salvation. He keeps talking through people. Now, let me remind you, Revelation chapter 11 is part of that uh, parenthetical section We're told something in one chapter that actually happens across the whole entire three and a half years of the tribulation period. And so there are people who are going to hear the witnesses that we're going to look at in just a moment. Hear them preach. Hear them teach. And who will be saved. Who will give their lives to the Lord because of these witnesses. But before they come along, we've got the witness of the church age. 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit residing in people and people witnessing. It's what we're called to do. I said this morning, I don't know how we could be Christians and not tell people about Jesus. Even if it's offensive. Even if they think every time we come, you see people turning around and heading in the other direction because they know you're going to say Jesus. They know the name's going to come up. We have to, gang. Why? Because we've seen it. Well, not with our eyes, but we've seen him with the eyes of faith. We know. We've experienced. I have, I have experienced too much Jesus in my life to remain silent and to not be a witness. And Jesus said in Revelation 2.13 to the church at Pergamum, a church representing a part of the church age, He says, You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And by the way, the Greek word for witness, if you don't know this, you might want to jot it down. The word that we use all the time, I'm going to go witnessing, I'm going to be a witness for Jesus, it's marteo. It's where we get our word martyr. The word for witness is the word martyr. And it means literally that you stand up and talk about what you've seen regardless of what happens to you. It's beside the point because you know and you have to share what you know. That marteo or martis, M-A-R-T-Y-S is another way to say it, another translation in the Greek. Remember it, it's important to our study tonight, it's pertinent. The witness is the martyr, is the witness. So we have the witness of the church age. We read in Revelation chapter 7, last group of witnesses, we're almost there. Revelation chapter 7, we read about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. 
144,000 Jews who are going to be sealed in the tribulation period, protected against things that are happening. Why? For the purpose of bringing the word, of witnessing what they know, of bringing all that history, that the last several thousand years of Jewish faith to bear on their understanding that Jesus is Lord, is Messiah, is the fulfillment of all things. And it will have a powerful effect. And as we said before, during the tribulation period, there will be a soul harvest, I believe, larger than any we've seen in the last 2,000 years. In that last seven year period, God pulls out all the stops and there will still be salvation. Well, why not just wait then? Why not just wait until the tribulation comes and see if it's true? And then if it's true, well then I'll believe you're taking an awful risk. You might die before you even have the chance to believe. And if you don't die, the Bible talks about a deluding influence. I, I spoke of this this morning about Cheryl and I standing there in the, uh, right outside of P.F. Chang's in, in the Alderwood Mall and looking out at all these people and wondering how many of these people are covered with the Holy Spirit. What a cool thought that was. There are some real weird looking people out there. <laughs> but then again, they could look in here and see some pretty weird looking people too. I'm not naming names. <laughs> Pointing at each other, that's good. But the Holy Spirit, the reason why evil is held back to any degree in the world right now is because the Holy Spirit is not limited. Jesus said, man, if I go away, it's better for you. Because then I'll send my Spirit. What do you mean, Jesus? I mean that not only will the Spirit be walking in flesh and blood through the Galilee, He will be all over the whole world. I'll be in, in, in humans everywhere. And my word will go out, and my witness will go out, and we will subdue. Evil will be subdued. I believe, by the way, one of the reasons the Bridge Christian Fellowship is in this silly little barn on Northwood the Island is because the presence of the Holy Spirit was needed here, locationally, in this place. Not, you know, I mean, there's a vast gulf between Anacortes and Oak Harbor with nothing in the middle. Now, there are people in the middle who believe and, and trust in the Lord. I think the Lord wanted worship to be happening right here. And the presence of His Holy Spirit, people drawn together right here. So anyway, I'm digressing a little bit. But the Lord basically is saying, and has always said, and it's interesting because He can do whatever He wants, but the Lord says, give me a witness. Let me ask you this. Do you think if the Lord changed the life of one person, one person in this area, that He could change the whole area? If, if the Lord got a hold of, Drew, just one high school student at Oak Harbor High School, could he change the high school? See, I believe he could. That's how God works. He says, give me a witness. Give me just one person who will go. Who, who will we send? Who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go. He had no idea. By the way, you know Isaiah, the witness, the prophet. Do you know how he died? They put him in a log and they sawed him in half. Marteo, the witness, the witness. God brings witnesses. Look at verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. How long is 1260 days? It's three and a half years. Now, if you add up three and a half years based on our calendar, 365 days, you won't come up with that number. But this is a Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, and it's a 360-day calendar, 1,260 days, exactly three and a half years. So for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the two witnesses will be prophesying, will be testifying, which is stunning. 
Because that means even while God is pouring out the, the, the weight of His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, even as God is really letting it flow at the same exact time, He's got His 144,000 Jewish witnesses. He's got His two prophetic witnesses in Jerusalem preaching to the world. He's going to have an angel flying overhead saying, Repent! He is pulling out all the stops, pouring out wrath, yes, but still preaching the message of grace. You still have time. It may be bad right now. You may even lose your head for believing in Jesus, but if you do, you've got all eternity to look forward with me. He says, I want my two witnesses, my two witnesses to prophesy. They're clothed in sackcloth. Which I think is interesting. It's an Old Testament picture. I don't know if you've ever worn sackcloth. It's not really the hot seller right now. Sackcloth. It's very scratchy. It's very uncomfortable. And it was worn in an act of repentance. Job covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. And oftentimes in the Old Testament and in the New, you will see people putting on sackcloth as a show of repentance to the Father. Why are the two prophets wearing it? Because they are calling people to repentance. They are there saying, repent, turn back to the Lord. That's why they're sent. They're sent that people alive at the time might repent. Now something else that's interesting about these two witnesses, it's not one, it's not three. It's two witnesses, and the Bible talks a lot about this. Oftentimes there are two witnesses sent in the scripture to doubly verify the message. So you just don't just have one person standing up there talking, but another one verifying what the first one is saying. Think about this. Numbers 13, 12 spies were sent into Canaan's land. Ten came back wimps, two came back studs. Joshua and Caleb, the two witnesses, the only two of those spies and of their entire generation that would go into the promised land because they stood up and witnessed for the power of the Lord. Numbers chapter 13. Later, by the way, when Joshua is about to go into the land after 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness, Joshua will send just two spies into the land. I think he learned something. Why waste it on 12? Ten are going to come back with thee anyway. So he sent two in. Jesus sent out witnesses. Luke chapter 10 talks about Jesus sending men out two by two, sending out his witnesses ahead of him before he came to the different towns in the Galilee to prepare people that Messiah was coming. It was very purposeful what he did, two at a time. Remember how many angels met the women at the tomb? Two angels, two witnesses verifying what had happened. Paul traveled in twos, first with Barnabas and then with Silas. Why the emphasis on two witnesses? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And Jesus translates that into our faith, into our lives. And he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, Matthew 18:15. If he listens to you, great, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Why, Lord? So that, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Confirmation. Verification. And by the way, as we've already seen tonight, and it's interesting, prophecy is often confirmed twice. Twice. As in the abomination of desolation fulfilled once by Antiochus Epiphanes will be fulfilled a second time by Antichrist in that time of tribulation. And those alive at the time, those Jewish people who know anything about the book of Daniel, who know anything about what happened in the time between the Testaments, 
who knew about this, who would know the history, they would see it. They'd go, oh, this is it. This is what Jesus was talking about. The abomination of desolation. We are now seeing it come back around that second time. It's the, it's the verification, the confirmation of two witnesses. Fulfilled sometimes in the short term and then again in the long term. And again, we'll see this over and over tonight. Verse 4. Verse 4 tells us of these two witnesses clothed in sackcloth. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Flipping your Bibles back to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah in the Old Testament. God's word, gang, is never just written on a whim. When you read something like, oh, these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands, God is not just being poetic. Oh, they're kind of like lights, but they're also like trees standing in Jerusalem. No, it's so much more. Deep into the Old Testament territory, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, explains the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Zechariah. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps that are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, the other on its left side, and then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel answered, who was speaking with me. He answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? <laughs> and I said, No, my Lord. I don't have a clue. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Get down to verse 11. And then I said to him, but what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? And so he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. I think the angel's having a little fun with, with Zachariah here. Verse 14, then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. These are my two anointed ones, my two witnesses. Now, now what are these things? This picture is fascinating. There's a golden lampstand, obviously a, a reference to the lampstand in the temple. And it's fed golden oil by golden pipes coming out of two olive trees, one on either side. You may recall that the oil for the lampstand in the temple was to be made of olive oil from olive trees. There was a specific and special way that it was to be made, but it came from the trees. And so here's Zechariah having this vision of there's the lampstand and two olive trees, and there are golden pipes coming out of the olive trees to the lampstand, and golden oil is flowing directly from the trees right into the lampstand. What is this talking about? The whole thing, gang, is a picture of how the power of the Holy Spirit works. The oil. Remember, oil in the Bible is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. So the oil is flowing into the lampstand, giving power to the lampstand. This whole thing, and we see it in verse 6, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the key here, the answer to this picture, what Zechariah was seeing, is this is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Now historically, this also talks about the olive trees. They represent something. Historically, when Zechariah prophesied, they represented the two priests, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Remember those who went back to rebuild the second temple. And the temple, Zechariah is prophesying, will be rebuilt by these two guys who are filled with the Spirit of God, Joshua, Zerubbabel. They are the two olive trees represented in this prophecy, enabled by God's Spirit to rebuild the temple. Two olive trees through whom the Spirit, the olive oil, flows into one lampstand, and the lampstand at this point pictures the temple. But listen, this was also happening... What was described here and the building of the second temple happened during a time of incredible tribulation. This is the first fulfillment of the prophecy. But when we get back to Revelation chapter 11, we see the second fulfillment of the same prophecy. The same prophecy, the two olive trees now are the two anointed ones, the witnesses who now stand in the time of tribulation, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to stand up for the Lord and to preach the gospel message to anyone who would hear. This vision is, again, it's one of those double prophecies foreshadowing these two witnesses. You might say, okay, well why, why not two lampstands? I mean, there's only one lampstand in Zechariah's prophecy, but there's two lampstands in John's picture. He says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Why two? Again, remember that at the time of Zerubbabel in the second temple... It would be presumed that the Spirit of God resided in one place, one place alone, the holy place of the temple. That would be the assumption. God's Spirit resides in a place, not on people. At the time of the tribulation, when you have these two witnesses, guess what? God's Spirit now resides where? In the heart of the witnesses. At that time, before Jesus came, before the Spirit could be poured out on all people, His Spirit resided in the temple. Or it's assumed that that's where the Spirit would be. But now the prophecy changes slightly. John changes it and says, Now I see two lampstands. Why? Because both of the witnesses have the Holy Spirit on them. They're not just olive trees now. They are both olive trees and lampstands completely filled by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And so these two Holy Spirit-filled witnesses powerfully preach the Word of God in troubled times. 